Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts or for the Faith Working radio show podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. This morning we're continuing our consideration of Matthew's Gospel, and we are in chapter 4, and we will be looking at verses 12 down through 25, the end of the chapter. So Matthew 4, 12 through 25. This is the Word of God. Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee, and leaving Nazareth he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region and the shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus, walking by the sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Then immediately they left their nets and followed him, going on from there. And he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat, with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father, and followed him. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went through all Syria, and they brought to him all all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. Let us pray. Our great God and Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ and his ministry. And we pray that by the Spirit you would give us understanding into the ways and the words of Jesus, that we too might be your people, that we might be faithful to you and serve you in our own day. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we're told here that Jesus withdraws out to the region of Galilee, and he does so specifically when he hears that John has been put in prison. Now, later on in Matthew, in chapter 14, Matthew will give us the details of how John came to be arrested. Now, remember, John has been out in the region beyond the Jordan. He has been preaching, giving a baptism of repentance, preaching for people to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He has baptized Jesus and thus identified him as the uh, Messiah. And at some point in John's ministry, He had publicly um, preached or uh, sent word or maybe said face-to-face to to Herod uh, that it was unlawful for Herod to have his brother's wife. uh, Herod's brother was Philip, 
And he had a, a wife named Herodias, and Herod had um, taken his brother's wife, and John had preached against this. Now, you have to remember that Herod is the king of the Jews. He purports to be the king of God's people. And so John has spoken out boldly about Herod's conduct as the king of Israel. And so Herod has arrested John and thrown him in prison. And he wanted to put him to death. And the only reason he held off is because he was afraid of the multitudes, because the multitudes all regarded John as being a prophet. But then there was a day uh, at Herod's birthday celebration when Herodias' daughter danced and pleased Herod, and he asked her what she would like. He gave her a promise he would grant her wish. And so her mother tells her, ask for John's head on a platter. And so thus ends the remarkable life and ministry of John the Baptist. So this is the beginning of this episode. Herod has arrested John and thrown him in prison. And we're told that upon this, Jesus uh, withdraws out to the region of Galilee. So Jesus here is intentionally moving out of harm's way. Things are getting hot in Jerusalem. There's going to be extra sensitivity by the powers that be there, and Jesus is moving away from that. Jesus knows how to pick his fights. Before his ministry is over, he's going to pick the fight of all fights, the fight to end all fights. Uh, but he's going to pick it at the right time in the right way. He's going to pick it when and where and how he chooses. Now is not the right time. So he withdraws to allow the kingdom of God to get a foothold. Now remember the pattern that we've seen so far in Matthew is that Jesus is embodying Israel in himself. He is becoming true Israel who's going to fulfill Israel's destiny to bring in the kingdom of heaven and to extend it over the world. And so, just like last week, when we looked at the temptation of Jesus, we saw that he's following exactly the history of Israel as Israel was led into the wilderness and was tempted uh, and failed. So Jesus is led into the wilderness and is tempted and succeeds. As Moses, uh, after Israel sinned with the golden calf, as Moses uh, was in the presence of God, and went 40 days and 40 nights without food and water. So Jesus in the desert is 40 days without food and water. And after our passage today, as we move on next week, we're going to see that just as Moses comes from, uh, brings the law of God from the mountain to the people, so Jesus is going to bring the law of God from the mount to the people. And so... This episode today is, is not just a throw-in. It follows this pattern exactly. This also follows the pattern of Israel in the Old Testament. George read to us in the Old Testament reading this morning uh, from Exodus 12 and 13, which refers to God bringing the people out in the Exodus. And it's very interesting. When God brings the people out in the Exodus, it, it tells us that there's 600 600 men on foot. What it's telling us is that God marches Israel out as an army. In other words, God is declaring, this is my people. These are the people who are under the blood of the Passover lamb. These are my people, and this is my army. So they march out of Egypt in martial array. And yet, as George read to us this morning, 
God takes them out of the way. The closest way to go where he's leading them is through the land of the Philistines. God takes them out of that way around by the Red Sea because he says that they're not ready for war. He is afraid that if they come in contact with the Philistines, that they will have a change of heart and want to go back to, uh, to Exodus. So however ready the people may think they are with 600 uh, basically fighting men, 600,000, that's a, that's a pretty big army, uh, they're not ready, and God knows they're not ready. And so he takes them in a roundabout way to um, build up his people until they're ready. And really, when you look at the whole 40 years in the wilderness, the whole time is God getting his people ready to fight kingdom warfare. They're not ready. He's preparing them that entire time. And so even in the same way, Jesus steers his fledgling army away from Jerusalem and Judea, and he withdraws to Galilee to build his army. And um, I think that we could learn a lot from this. Sometimes it's good to be underneath the radar, at least for a while, because what we're seeing is that an effective kingdom army is not something that can be gotten overnight. It needs time to be built up, and we will see further what it means to be built up as God's kingdom army and to really be ready to engage in warfare. This is part of what Matthew is getting at when he says that Jesus' actions here were in fulfillment of Isaiah uh, chapter 9. That's the part of Isaiah he is quoting when he says... um, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region and the shadow of death light has uh, dawned. That's verses 15 and 16. Now, Isaiah chapter 9 is an incredibly rich and complex um, passage. And always remember, when the... New Testament uh, writers quote uh, a verse from the Old Testament or allude to a verse from the Old Testament, they're not proof texting. They're not doing as we often do, which is lift something out of context and pin it to something we're trying to say because it sounds like it supports what we're trying to say. What they're doing is calling to mind the entire passage and the entire context. They didn't have word processors back then. It's not just a matter of cutting and pasting over into a document. Everything's got to be written out. So by quoting a verse or two, they're bringing to mind the entire passage. And just so you know, Isaiah 9, just to help orient you, this is the passage which says, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, and, and so forth. It's that fantastic passage that we sing about and quote so often, particularly in the Christmas season and the Advent season. Now, leading up to those really famous words, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, it speaks of God giving victory to his people. So it's, a, it's in the context of warfare. It says God's going to give victory to his people, and it says that he is going to do so as in the day of Midian. That's what it says right before unto us a a child is born, unto us a son is given. 
He's going to give his people victory as in the day of Midian. Now, the day of Midian is referring to the victory that God gave to Gideon and his army of 300. You remember that story in Judges chapter 7. Uh, God is going to lead um, Gideon uh, to deliver uh, Israel from her oppressors. Gideon is not ready to fight. God has to go through a lot of different steps to get Gideon. Remember, Gideon puts the fleece, and he wants God to put the dew on the fleece and not on the ground, and then he wants God to put the dew on the ground and not on the fleece. All these different things God does to get Gideon ready to lead, and then when he has him lead Israel out uh, in an army, God says, you know, there's too many men here. Everybody who's afraid, go home. So those men leave. There's still too many men. And so God whittles it down to where you have 300 men in Gideon. That's, that's it. And basically what we can see is that God is making it clear that with his army, he's the one who does the fighting. It's like an army where the only one who really does the fighting is the general. The whole thing is about the general fighting for the army. And the whole thing is about whether the general is pleased to fight for the army. And you recall in the story, God has the 300 men. They carry trumpets and they carry lamps. And they get around the enemy army. They blow their trumpets and they, they, they break these lamps. And God turns the swords of the enemy against one another so they annihilate one another. So it's very, very clear who's doing the fighting in the battle at Midian. And so we see that being God's army and being prepared to fight is a very different concept when we're thinking of it in terms of the kingdom, when we're thinking of it spiritually than the normal way we would think. God goes about it in a very different way that makes it very clear that he is the one who is uh, fighting. Now, in Isaiah 9, just so we talked about Unto us a son of born, unto us, you know, that passage. Right before that, it talks about victory of God's people as at Midian. And right before that, it talks about light dawning upon God's people who live in the shadow of death. And that's the passage, that's the, the verse that Matthew is quoting. And Isaiah specifies that it is Galilee of the Gentiles, which was the region of the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. That is where the light is going to dawn. Now, all of this is mixed together. Victory of God's people. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and light dawning over the land that is dwelling in the shadow of death. This is really a way of saying that all Israel has become the shadow of death and a land of darkness. Not simply Zebulun and Naphtali, but all of it. And let me explain how he is doing this. If you understand the history of this region, Zebulun and Naphtali, it's up there around the Sea of Galilee, it was regarded as a place of darkness and curse by the Jews. The reason goes all the way back to the day of King Solomon. After King Solomon had finished building the temple, the magnificent temple and his palace, he apparently became strapped for cash, which back then was gold. And he arranged a deal with King Hiram of Tyre, who was an ally 
who had sent supplies to Solomon for building of the temple and, and so forth. But in this deal that Solomon arranged, he arranged to give King Hiram some cities in, in um, exchange for 120 talents of gold. 120 talents, I know when I, if, when I picture that, I picture 120 coin, gold coins or something like that. 120 talents of gold is four and a half tons of gold. Okay? Serious, serious gold. I mean, it's going to be one big UPS truck that pulls up when, when the four and a half tons of gold comes. And so Solomon's going to give Hiram some cities in exchange for that. Which cities is he going to give them? He's going to give them the cities of Zebulun and Naphtali up there around Galilee. And we're told in 1 Kings chapter 9 that after Hiram inspects the cities, he declares them worthless. He says, what cities are these which you have given me, my brother? And he calls them the land of Kabul, which literally means good for nothing. And then the text says in 1 Kings 9, as they are to this day. In other words, Hiram was not the only one who regarded these cities up there by Galilee to be good for nothing. Later on, this will become the first region of Israel to be taken off in the Assyrian captivity, 2 Kings chapter 15. And when the Assyrians take that region off first, they're going to reseed the region. What they do is they transport the people out and then they bring some of their own people in there who worship their gods and plant them there. They want to destroy the culture uh, that is built up around the God of Israel. So it's been reseeded with Gentiles going way, way, way back. So by Jesus' day, the Jews regard the area kind of like brackish water. I don't know if you're familiar with brackish water, but down in, in Florida where I grew up, you have the ocean, which is salt water. You have rivers and lakes and so forth, which is fresh water. And then you have a mix, brackish water. That's like the bay and the bayous. They're, they're half salt water and half fresh water in between. And that's the way the Jews regarded this uh, area of Galilee. Um, it was half Jewish and half Gentile, you know. So it was viewed with a lot of suspicion. In terms of all things Jewish, it was regarded as a backwater uh, from where nothing good was likely to come. So it was like if you had a great big room and you have a far corner of the room and you have a light in the middle of the room and, and it just doesn't quite reach into that corner, that dark corner over there, that's Galilee. That's Zebulun and Naphtali. This is where Jesus has gone um, to begin his ministry, to begin building things up. Now, by going there in fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, Jesus is really saying, like I pointed out, that all Israel is darkness. Not just this region, but all Israel is in darkness. You see, Galilee is darkness, as, as Isaiah 9 points out. Uh, Galilee is living under the shadow of death. But Galilee is not where Jesus, where he was tried to be killed when he was a child. It wasn't Galilee who tried to kill him as a child. That was Herod in Jerusalem. 
It was Herod in Jerusalem who tried to kill him with a child. It, and it will be Jerusalem and the religious leadership there, ultimately, who will frame Jesus and deliver him over to be crucified, not Galilee. The point is that if, if Galilee and Zebulun, if this area is darkness, then how dark has the rest of Israel really um, come? The difference, so Galilee is dark, but Jerusalem is darker. And the difference in darkness is not really a difference in the degree of the darkness itself. It's a difference in the degree of which the people perceive that they are in darkness. In other words, um, it's like two people living in darkness, but one person knows they're in darkness and the other one doesn't. The other one denies that they are in darkness darkness. It's like two people who are blind, but one knows it and the other denies it. This is a point that Jesus is going to make very powerfully in John chapter 9 when he heals the man who was born blind. He's going to say to the religious leaders who were condemning this healing because it took place on the Sabbath, he says to them, you say you see, therefore your sin remains. In other words, the whole, this whole scenario is about the man born blind is not as blind as the religious leaders. Because the man born blind knows he's blind. He knows he needs light. He knows he needs healing. The religious leaders are just as blind, but they deny it. They won't admit it. And so this is going to be this whole... Um, comment on Israel as being in darkness that's going to run throughout Jesus's uh, ministry. And at the same time, Jesus is signaling that with the dawning of the kingdom, the dawning of the light, the gospel is going to come, the light is going to come, not just over Galilee and all of Israel, but it's going to go out to the whole world and specifically to all the Gentile nations. And one of the ways that um, Jesus brought this out, and Matthew picks up on it, is all the different references and connections to the sea which are in this passage. If you read through this passage, notice how many times it refers to the Sea of Galilee, or the sea, or Simon and Andrew being fishermen who are casting their nets into the sea, and John and James, his brother, who were fishermen with their father who were cleaning their nets. All of these references to the sea. Um, throughout the Bible, God uses elements of the physical creation to symbolize elements of humanity and of also the spiritual realm. And God uses the earth, this is a, a typical pattern, he uses the earth or the land, the dwelling place of humanity, as symbols of his people Israel. Now, we're capable of swimming, we're capable of going out into the ocean, but if you've ever really been around a fish, or particularly if you've ever been in a situation where you're threatened by some kind of a sea creature, you realize just how out of your, out of your element you are. I remember one time uh, when I was growing up, I uh, went snorkeling out in the the pass, which is where the ocean comes and meets uh, the bay. And um, when the seawater is coming in, it's very, very clear. There's rocks and jetties there. So a lot of beautiful fish gather there. And it's, it's just uh, very beautiful to see. 
But sometimes some other things show up that you aren't happy to see. Sharks, barracudas, um, you can get jellyfish, and other things like that. Well, I was swimming out there one time, and I came face to face with this, not a shark, fortunately, but it was a fish called a remora. Now, if you ever see pictures of whales or sharks uh, in the documentaries and they show them, some of the big ones, you'll actually see these weird fish that are hanging onto them. They're, they stick onto their sides. A remora on the bottom of it has a big, like a big suction cup mouth. And it looks for a big fish like a shark or something. It, it literally attaches on to it and just hangs on for the ride. And I don't know if they suck their blood or what they do, but they definitely hang on. You'll see them. And so I look up, and here's this remora staring at me, who I guess considers me to be big enough for him to attach onto. And so I'm not interested in that. I don't want this thing stuck onto me. So I start trying to, to whack at this thing, to, to get it to go away, to hit it or whatever. And of course, I, I go like this through the water and the fish just kind of, you know, he just bounces up a couple of, he's just, you know, and I'm just going, I feel like I am retarded here. I'm totally out of my element. I can't even, I, this is a joke to this fish. So anyway, the, the sea, even though we can go there, is not the dwelling place of mankind. Our dwelling place is the land. And so the land or the earth is a type of God's people, Israel. And he will use the sea oftentimes in the Bible, the deep, dark, teeming, tumultuous sea as a symbol of the Gentile nations. I don't know if you've ever gone swimming or snorkeling. You don't have to get very far underneath the water before it gets really dark. The light just fails to penetrate at a certain point. So the sea is deep, is dark. There's all kinds of things down there. There's all kinds of schools of fish that just kind of dart after one another, uh, you know, without any rhyme or reason. There's sea monsters and things down there. And this is a deep, dark treacherous environment. And so the sea is used to represent the Gentile nations in many occasions. This is the same typology we see in, a, in, in Isaiah chapter 60, for example, which is another passage that talks about light darning on darkness. Arise and shine, for your light has come. And then the passage goes on to say, the, the abundance of the sea will turn to you the wealth of the Gentiles will come to you. So God saying the abundance of the sea will turn to you is typological language for the wealth of the Gentiles will come to you. So for Jesus to begin his ministry at the Sea of Galilee, he's foreshadowing that the gospel is about to break out into the Gentile nations. Not many references at all in the Old Testament, if any, to Israelites being fishermen. Try to think. Can you think of any examples in the Old Testament of Israelites being fishermen? Shepherds, all kinds of other things, but not really fishermen. In fact, the only references to fishermen uh, in the Old Testament in Amos and other places like that is of captivity. Gentile fishermen who are going to be snatching Israelites out of the land and taking them off into captivity. Here it reverses that. Jesus picks two sets of brothers who are fishermen to be the cornerstones of his disciples. They're all fishermen. Jesus is saying, I'm going to make you fishers 
of men. There's a new direction here. And Jesus is saying, you're going to continue to be fishermen, but you're going to be fishermen men. But instead of Gentiles yanking you out of God's people, carrying you off into captivity, you're going to be drawing in all the nations of the world to the church, to God's people, to come and worship God. Now, as part of this process, though, we need to notice that the kingdom doesn't just go directly first to the Gentiles. It goes first to God's people in order to renew them and to reform them. And then it's going to go through God's people out to the Gentiles. And the message that Jesus preaches to God's people is the same exact message that's going to be preached to all the Gentiles, and that is repent and believe. Jesus is preaching just like John was, and he's preaching here to Israelites and to God-fearers. Those are Gentiles who believe in the God of Israel, who worship the God of Israel, but they just haven't been circumcised and come under uh, the strictures of the law. So they're believers, basically. They're all believers. That's who the message is initially going to. In Acts chapter uh, 20, Paul summed up his message in his preaching, and he says, I've preached to both the circumcision and the uncircumcision. Notice, the circumcision too. What has he preached? He says, repentance toward God and faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is a message of repentance that is going first to God's people. And we'll talk more about that in just a minute. We also need to see that he's, he's preaching in the synagogues, we're told. And that's where all those who who own and believe in the God of Israel are going to come. And then we're told that he heals. He's healing the sick. He's casting out demons. And this is a picture of God's power coming with the kingdom, of of Jesus triumphing over Satan. Because all of these outward infirmities, whether it's a spiritual condition like uh, demon possession or whether it's just sicknesses and so forth, this is a picture of God's people. This is not a picture of the Gentiles. We know that the unbelievers out there in the deep, dark sea, we know what they're like. We know they're like that. But again, this is the region of darkness, this darkness that's covering all of God's people. It's not a picture of health. God's people need to be healed. God's people need to be made whole before they can be fishers of men and bring health and light to the world. So thus we see that Jesus' preaching ministry and his healing ministry go hand in hand, and it's two ways of saying the same thing. Starting with his own household, God is saying, you need the light, you need health, before you can take light and health to the world. So we see that when God goes about making the light shine on those in darkness in the world, he always begins by shining his light on his own people. And when he goes about bringing health to all the nations, he always begins by healing his people. He always begins and works with his people. This is something we need to learn. For one thing, we start learning the centrality and the importance of the church. We desperately need revival and mass conversion in the world. We need mass conversion in our country. Apart from mass conversion in our country, America... Long term, there is no hope. I'm not making any kind of short-term predictions. We don't know. I'm just telling you long term, apart from mass conversion, there is no hope for this country. 
And how does that begin? It always begins with God bringing about renewal of his own people, and then he causes it to break out to the world. And yet, this is a very difficult thing for God's people. You know, if you think of it, it's kind of nice in one sense because it means you are the linchpin of the world. You're the linchpin. It's not Congress. It's not anybody in Washington. It's not any of the greater powerful. It's not George Soros. It's not any of these big people. It's little old you, the people of God, those who name the name of Christ. You are literally the key to the entire world and what happens with the world. But this is a very difficult thing on the flip side for God's people because unless we humble ourselves, God's people again and again find this message to be insulting. Jesus starts preaching, repent. Who's he preaching to? God's people. Well, what do you mean, Jesus? Do you know who you're talking? Do you know who we are? Do you know who I am? You're preaching repent to us? Go preach repent to them. Preach to those people out there. Let me tell you about all their problems. They're the ones who need to repent. No, Jesus is saying to his people, Jesus is saying to us, repent and believe. Now, he's not saying that we don't believe now. He's not saying that we've never repented of anything or we don't know what that means. But it is an ongoing uh, heart and orientation toward God. We don't just believe for one moment. We believe and we believe and we believe. It's just like marriage begins at one moment, but it doesn't end at one moment. It's a whole attitude and heart of life that goes on from that point. And so is our relationship with God. We keep believing. Faith and love, faith and love are the two big things that the Bible keeps talking about. Faith believes and love repents. How does love repent? Well, what is repenting? It's a turning away from our own way and a turning toward God. If we turn toward God, we're going to turn away from our own way. What causes us to turn toward God? Well, love. You, you turn to one toward the one you love. We turn toward God and we Love Him. And these are the things that are so important for us to become the people of God, to become a kingdom army who is really ready to fight. You know, early on in Jesus' ministry, His disciples, when the throng started following Him, a lot of His disciples, were they were ready to go. They were ready to go to Jerusalem. They're ready for the Messiah to show up and to take over take control, we're going to make things happen here, everything is going to be great. They're all ready for that, and Jesus will have none of it. He, he'll leave the crowds, he'll leave the throngs, and he'll go off by himself somewhere. He'll cross the Sea of Galilee, and, and they're going, where is he, where is he? Why does he go to Jerusalem? This is great. He's the man. He's the Messiah, and Jesus will have none of it. It's interesting that by the time Jesus says, it's time, and he sets his face to Jerusalem. By that time, his disciples, his apostles who are right around him, are saying, Jesus, don't go. They're saying, you know what awaits for you there? This is not going to be good. This is not good. It's very interesting that as they're becoming more prepared for kingdom warfare, they're not so hot to trot on, come on, bring him on, bring on the enemy. You know, it's, uh, I've seen this in the military as well. You get 
young soldiers and they're strong and they're full of all kinds of fighting energy. And it's like, bring on the enemy. I want to engage. I want a fight. None of the soldiers who've been in combat, none of the ones who really are great soldiers who've been there, who've done great deeds, none of them talk that way. None of them say, yeah, bring on the fight, one at a time or all at once, doesn't matter to me, bring it on. They don't talk that way because they've been there. And as Jesus' disciples get more prepared for kingdom warfare, their talk goes away from, let's go to Jerusalem, let's take over to Jesus, are you sure about this? But at that point, Jesus is sure, he says, yes, it's time to pick a fight now, his disciples aren't quite ready at that point because when he's arrested, they're going to scatter. They're not quite ready. Even then, they're becoming more sober and more wise about combat. They're understanding it's not like a video game. People die. And guys may dream of winning the Congressional Medal of Honor, but nobody ever won that medal without being scared to death. Nobody ever won that medal by wishing they, without wishing they could have been at a different point because it means you're coming perilously close to death. So as they get more ready, they have a more mature and a sober assessment of things. But Jesus will have them finally prepared when he's resurrected and he appears to them, he talks to them. Now, when he's getting them ready, as he's about to be crucified, he spends a lot of time talking to them. He has the upper room discourses. Now he's, he's giving them some training. They've seen some conflict out there at Galilee and that kind of stuff. But as they're getting prepared to really enter into the fray, he's just talking to them. He's talking to them. He has their attention. And he talks to them in the upper room discourses. And what he talks to them about is basically faith and love, faith and love. He talks about, you believe in God, believe also in me. My peace I give to you, trust in me. And he talks to them about love. He talks to them about loving God, and he talks to them about loving one another because warfare is not an individualistic activity. Warfare is a team enterprise. And in warfare, to be successful, one of the things that's been written about again and again by psychiatrists and others is the unity, the bond that comes about when brothers are together under fire and in combat. That for a, un for a unit to really be ready to fight, every person in the unit has to have the mentality of, I will die for any one of these guys here. I will die for any one of them. I will die for every one of them. This is what causes soldiers to throw themselves on a grenade to save their brothers. This is what causes a unit to fight. And so Jesus speaks to his disciples about a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. This is how everybody will know you're my disciples. So great emphasis on this. Great emphasis on love to God. He says, as, as the fathers loved me, I have loved you. You will show your love for me if you love me and keep my commandments. And a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. And so there's this whole thing. We've seen that 
being ready for kingdom warfare means God being pleased to fight for us. That's what it means. And the whole thing is about Christ working in us by His Spirit, preparing us to where we have the kind of mentality toward God and toward one another that God is pleased to rise up on our behalf and to show His power in and among us, over and through us. That's really what it's all about. So there's all this talk about love and loving one another. And it's interesting, John, of course, the beloved disciple, John, John, the, one of the two sets of brothers here, John, son of Zebedee, writes all about this in his first epistle. And he talks about love and he talks about how, how to know if you love. He talks about loving God and how to know if you love God. He talks about loving God's people and how do you know if you love God's people. And he always points us in the opposite direction. You know, if you think about the two great commandments, love God, love your neighbor. And that's what Jesus is really building off of. If you should love your neighbor, which is whoever God puts in front of you, how much more then should you love those who bear the name of Christ, your brethren? Jesus says, well, you love them the way I've loved you. No one has love more than somebody who lays down his life for his brethren. But when John basically takes up those two great commandments, love God and, and love one another, he, he crosses them, as, as it were. He points toward the other one whenever you want to know about the first one. If you, in other words, he says this, How, by this we know that we love God when we love the brethren. By this we know that we love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. When we love our neighbor, when we love our brethren as Jesus loved us. That's how you know. You can't know that you love God by saying, I love God. I, I have feelings of love for God. That's not how you know that you love God. You know exactly how much you love God by knowing how much you love one another. And, and loving the people of God, you can't abstract it and going, oh, the people of God, oh, the church of God. I love the church of God. I love the people of God. The people of God are stinky people. They're stinky sinners. They're quirky. They're weird. They're all kinds of stuff. It's the people you know, the people in this room that you see, whose weirdnesses you know, whose quirks you know, whose sins you know, whose shortcomings you know, whose hang-ups you know. The people with whom you would never hang if you weren't a Christian and God told you to. Okay? Um, these are the people, your love for these people, you're identifying with these people and saying, these are my people. And she is my people, and he's my people, and those kids are my people. And I'll lay down my life. You mess with them, you're messing with me. You mess with them, you're messing with me. You know, it's that kind of love and identity. That's what it means to love God's people. And that is how we know if we love God. Then John turns it around and he says, By this we know that we love the brethren. And then he points the other way and he says, when we love God and keep His commandments. We can't just go, oh, I love the people of God. I just love them to death. No, he says, do you love God? Do you keep His commandments? Do you keep God's commandments? That's how you know. Do you do the things? Do you have the attitude that Christ had? Do you prefer other people's interests before yourself? Are you devoid of envy? Are you devoid of rivalry? 
with others? Are you devoid of ill will toward any of your brothers or sisters? Keeping the commandments with God, this is how you know if you love your brothers and sisters. And this is really where Jesus ends up when he's going and preparing his people for kingdom warfare, preparing God's army, preparing Gideon's 300. This is where he goes. So if we want to be a people that are engaged in kingdom warfare, if we want to be God's army, in other words, we want to see God do mighty things, and we do, I know you do, I know you do. And it's one of the things that I'm most thankful for. Uh, for all of you and, and for God's work here that he's given us understanding. We do have a zeal. We do have a desire to engage the enemy, a desire to make a difference. But we have to remember it's not really about us fighting so much as it is about God fighting on our behalf, him showing himself mighty. It's us being good soldiers means we're the kind of people that God is just pleased to show his presence to, to show his presence in the midst of, and to rise up and to do mighty things uh, on our behalf. So, let us take to heart. It's not always a bad thing to be in a backwater, because that's where God goes to build up his people. But let us understand what it means. It means faith and repentance to us. It means faith and love. It means turning to God in love. It means measuring our love by how we love one another. This is how Jesus prepared his army. This is how he still prepares his army. So let's cooperate with his action. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.